Here we are again. Welcome back to MLEX's weekly conversation covering the big issues in regulatory affairs. James Paniki with you. Welcome to the podcast, wherever you may be listening. Now, end-to-end encryption in messaging services has been a boon for privacy. It's hard to see the downside to the fact that you can send someone your banking details or medical records or other personal information without having to worry about it falling into the wrong hands. Yet encryption hasn't been kind to law enforcement agencies. With phone taps quickly becoming a thing of the past as criminals embrace new secure channels of communication, police forces are left struggling, something that, particularly against the backdrop of terrorist attacks, has left law enforcement agencies clamouring for change. Today we're going to talk about moves in the EU to address these grievances. We'll also point to an interesting policy link with moves to force digital platforms to remove terrorist content. Then we'll touch base with our correspondent in Australia to see how encryption legislation, which has now been in place for almost two years, is playing out in that jurisdiction. Joining us from Brussels are Matthew Newman, MLEX's Chief Correspondent covering data protection and privacy, and Areski Yaish, who reports for MLEX on national competition issues. Um, Matthew, let's start with you for an overview of this discussion. What exactly is the EU planning here? Does it in fact intend to ban end-to-end encryption? The EU is uh, in the middle of a debate on security of communication and fighting crime and terrorism. Um, The short answer is no, it's not going to be an imminent ban of end-to-end encryption. But what I would say, it's more of a a long-term concern from privacy advocates. And the reason is because of what's been happening the last couple of months in Europe, and that's um, uh, an upsurge in terrorism. So we've had some horrific attacks in France and Germany and Austria, and this has galvanized the politicians to want to do something. So we'll hear uh, from my colleague Oreski on on the terrorist content front, but when it comes to these end-to-end encryption services, and we're talking about WhatsApp or uh, Signal or others, um, these have become more and more prevalent. Facebook announced last year that they want all their services to use end-to-end encryption, and it essentially means that there is a lock on what... Uh, law enforcement can see, can hear uh, in these communications. Uh, That's great for privacy. Uh, People love that, but it's bad for uh, law enforcement, which uh, wants to have access to this because that's how criminals and predators and sexual abuse predators uh, communicate. So what's happening now is that um, the EU is debating a draft resolution. Um, We've seen this resolution from November 6th, and what it says is that it's essential to preserve the powers of competent authorities in the areas of security and criminal justice through lawful access to carry out their tasks. And if you decode that, it essentially means that they want to have access to end-to-end encryption. Now, they say that they are not going to ban, they're stopping short of a ban on end-to-end encryption, um, or a mandate for backdoors, which is a mechanism that allows law enforcement to decrypt the communications. But the fact that they're calling for preserving the powers of law enforcement to access this electronic evidence is really raising alarm bells for privacy advocates. 
Now, so there's no doubt what law enforcement agencies think about this. We understand the logic. They want access to this uh, encrypted uh, communication in the same way that they want the power to, or they've always had the power to tap your phone. But what do EU data protection authorities say about encryption? How does their view play out in this context? This is where it gets really interesting in the EU because you, you probably are aware that the EU has a very strict data protection regime called the General Data Protection Regulation. And the encryption is embedded in that regulation. Um, it's fully endorsed. It's, it's inside the actual rules. Um, so when you talk to the data protection authorities, they uh, roundly support uh, the use of encryption, and they are actually um, quite alarmed that the EU member states are considering a, uh, a let's say, exceptions. Um, just uh, a couple weeks ago, the European Data Protection Supervisor, which is the um, authority that looks at the data uh, use of um, European institutions, um, said that there should be a legal base for any kind of access to these encryption services. And that, that, that what's happening is that there's a, um, a law um, that's being debated right now that would try to fight child abuse uh, messages. And the um, EU is, is, is close to passing that. And the, that's why the data protection authorities are very alarmed that there should be a proper uh, a legal base for it and not just an exception to the existing rules. Okay, so we've got law enforcement on the one side, we've got uh, data protection agencies on the other. Where does the EU's plans for end-to-end encryption services, on? I mean, on which side of the debate are EU uh, authorities likely to end up on this? Well, uh, what, what they want to do is uh, get the gather the forces of the tech industry and have um, a, a more of a debate with uh, academia, with experts, and try to find some sort of solution um, that would allow the competent authorities to carry out their what they call operational tasks. Um, and for privacy advocates, that's the alarm bell competent authorities mean surveillance authorities. Um, so the, on, in the short term, what they're going to do is pass this resolution, then it goes to the European Commission, which is the executive arm of the EU, and they will have to uh, come up with some sort of plan to uh, look more deeply into end-to-end encryption. And we will probably see that next year. Now, in just a few words before I bring Redsky into the conversation, there's no shortage of uh, privacy, data privacy advocates in Brussels. How have they reacted uh, to these proposals? Well, they're really alarmed. So uh, I spoke to uh, a member of the European Parliament, uh, uh, Patrick Breyer, who's one of the leading advocates for privacy, and he said that creating backdoors um, won't bring more security and would not have prevented any of the terrorist attacks in France or other EU countries. And he's saying that if you sacrifice secure encryption in order to allow eavesdropping, that will destroy the privacy protection of everyone. So that includes business secrets, state secrets, uh, journalists, and, uh, and potentially will allow for mass spying by foreign intelligence services, as well as hacker attacks. So he's really upset and ringing the alarm bells, and he's hoping that the EU is going to really back down on this. 
Okay, Arezki, let me bring you into the discussion at this point to uh, broaden our perspective. Now, recently, France and Austria, so two EU member states, uh, pushed to establish uh, stricter measures against terrorist content on- online. So we're not talking encrypted messages here, but we're talking about things like posts on social media and the like. So tell me something more about this uh, political context and this, uh, and this policy drive. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me here. Uh, yes, so in the wake of the recent terrorist attacks we, we unfortunately saw uh, in France and uh, Austria last month and also er- earlier this month, there, there is a, a political push, at least in, in France and Austria, uh, to come up with uh, stricter rules when it comes to uh, content online, terrorist content online. In Paris three weeks ago, uh, I think two weeks ago, Emmanuel Macron had a, a, a press conference with uh, Sebastian Kurz, the, the, the Chancellor of, uh, of Austria, who, who visited uh, Macron in, uh, in Paris. And the idea here was to uh, show a common front on the need to strengthen the, the, the cooperation and the exchange of information between uh, security services. But uh, there were also uh, talks on the way to go against uh, illegal and terrorist content online. And uh, that day, Kurz and Macron made clear that they were supportive of the European Commission initiatives on the terrorist content regulation. And, uh, and before that meeting already, uh, uh, the, the French government uh, summoned head of uh, big tech uh, uh, social platforms in, in Paris to talk on ways to uh, withdraw illegal and uh, terrorist content uh, more swiftly. Uh, so clearly, uh, uh, this is an opportunity for for, for France and Austria to politically push for more coordination on, on that front. Mm. Now, uh, sadly, this isn't the first time that uh, EU countries have pledged to strengthen their efforts against uh, terrorist uh, content online. But what is new about this recent idea put forward by uh, Kurtz and Macron? Uh, indeed, I mean, at least since... Uh, uh, 2015, where uh, terrible uh, Paris attacks uh, claimed the life of uh, more than 200 people, and after uh, a terrible uh, terrorist attack as well in Nice during Bastille Day in 2016, uh, there is a, a willingness to to push for uh, stricter rules in, in France, including rules to to ban uh, illegal and uh, terrorist content online. So, what what is new politically speaking is that we have a uh, uh, it's it's more coordinated at least between France, Germany, uh, Austria, on the, on 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 that topic, uh, and that now uh, there's uh, clearly uh, a willingness uh, to have a common EU laws, but at the same time, I think France at least is uh, willing to to accelerate uh, after several attempts to uh, to to go against uh, terrorist content online. Uh, there's a, a real determination now, two years ahead of the presidential election, to show that we are having results. And uh, clearly, with two laws now in France that are debated, we can see that France is really serious uh, about uh, going against uh, terrorist content. Well, given that France, as you've just described it, uh, is so determined to push ahead with this, uh, could we face a situation in which France, uh, Paris, goes it alone and doesn't wait for an EU law uh, to act? Of course, France is supportive of uh, any uh, advancement at, at EU level, 
But it's clear that uh, France is also ready to uh, to act on his own. Uh, and it, it's pretty clear when you look at the recent political debate we had on two upcoming legislation in France. One has been voted yesterday in Parliament, this week in Parliament, but uh, will be f- amended by the Senate. It's a, low, a bill on global security, which will, uh, for instance, help policemen uh, during their investigation online, but also... Uh, there's a, a most important legislation coming, uh, which will be presented next month uh, by the French ministers. It's a, it's a law on, uh, I mean, the, the translation is kind of complicated. It's a bill bolstering French Republic principles. And here we may see more on uh, aid speech and on the way to go against terrorist content. Mm. Now, we don't want to get stuck into a, a discussion about, um, about you know, laicite and secularism in France because we'll never... We'll never get out of it. But do you, is there a sense that um, that France might have gone a bit too far? I mean, are these measures excessive, or is it all justified given uh, everything that's happened in recent years? Uh, it's a very delicate question. Uh, the thing is that you know uh, it's not the first time France is trying to uh, to to be tough on hate speech. Uh, broadly speaking, a law has been already censored uh, uh, censored yes uh, earlier di- earlier this year by the Conseil Constitutionnel, the Constitutional Council. Uh, you know it's on on, on uh, the need to uh, get out uh, illegal content in twenty four hours from uh, social platforms. I mean, the risk for platforms was to face hefty fines. And uh, the uh, Constitutional Council uh, considered that uh, France was going too far because, uh, you know, 24 hours was very short notice for such content. I mean, for terrorist content, it it would be one hour. But, uh, I mean, France tried to broaden the scope and try to to go beyond. And, uh, yeah. Okay, so Matthew, uh, here we now are. It all seems to come back to the EU and policy proposals. Uh, Returning to the encryption discussion, what's a way forward there? What should we expect on this front? Well, when this draft resolution uh, started getting reported in the Austrian press, uh, the Germany, which is leading the the talks right now, they responded by saying that uh, uh, there are no plans to ban uh, end-to-end encryption, and what they're really looking for is a uh, solution um, that would bring in um, a bigger debate. Um, they they want they don't want to weaken encryption um, systems, and so what they they're calling for is a quote trustful discussion. So we'll have a resolution from the EU probably next month, and then they'll start uh, this active discussion with the technology industry, and hopefully we'll see something uh, come out of the European Commission uh, probably in you know mid two thousand twenty one. Matthew Aritsky, it's been great talking. Thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you, James. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, James. Aritsky Yeish is MLEX's Brussels-based correspondent covering national competition and digital affairs. Also in Brussels was Matthew Newman, MLEX's chief correspondent for data protection and privacy. And we'll post links to their analysis of these two issues, encryption and the removal of violent content, at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And in just a moment, we'll discuss Australia's recent experience with legislation dealing with these same issues and the controversy over privacy and backdoor access to encrypted messages is remarkably similar to what we've just heard about in the European context. 
You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki. Thank you for making it this far. Now, this discussion about encryption would be eerily familiar to our subscribers who have been reading the dispatches of Laurel Henning, MLEX's Sydney-based senior reporter. And to talk the issue through, Laurel is, in fact, with us right this very moment. So, uh, Laurel, let's start with uh, encryption. What prompted the Australian encryption proposal way back in 2018? Hi, James. Good to be with you. Um, Well, to give it its full name in Australia, it's known as the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment Assistance and Access Act. Bit of a mouthful. Uh, It was introduced at the end of 2018 and prompted really by increased concerns on the part of law enforcement agencies that there would be an increased terrorism threat over Christmas that year. But actually, what we've heard more recently from federal police just in August of this year is that the measures weren't, haven't been used and weren't used to counter a terrorism threat until mid-2019. And was the law particularly controversial at the time of its drafting? It certainly was, um, particularly among technology companies who were worried that the legislation would introduce what they called a systemic weakness into Australian networks. So the idea that you introduce something, you try to access a particular part of, let's say, WhatsApp or whatever it might be, but the result is a potential vulnerability to an entire network or system, perhaps a financial network or an energy network, um, and also that it would, the law would undermine Australian business from an international perspective, that uh, customers overseas may have less faith in the security of Australian technology as a result. Mm. Now, is this systemic weakness that you've just mentioned, is that the same as the backdoor that Matthew was talking about a bit earlier on? Yes, it's the same idea. And really, it comes from this idea that a warrant for access to a technology system is very different to a warrant to access to a single home or an office. You're not accessing one specific place, these technology companies would have argued, or privacy advocates probably argue, but rather in accessing a system or network, what you've done is you've, you've had to alter that network in some form to gain that access, and that change then risks creating this backdoor or systemic weakness. Now, you mentioned uh, the warrant system. So these are law enforcement agencies that obtain a warrant to uh, obtain decrypted uh, messages. Uh, Who has oversight of this warrant system? So in Australia, the oversight for that system lies with uh, the Attorney General, uh, which is an unpopular part of the law. Industry has been keen since the get-go to have someone independent from government involved in the oversight of that. And and we should clarify that Attorney General in the Australian context is simply a minister, a minister of the government, so it is um, very much part of the executive right. That's it, yes. So very much within government, and that's part of the concern. And the warrants that we're talking about were a key part of why this legislation was introduced. I mean, that that is central to the process. That's exactly right, James. Um, Before the law was introduced, there were already voluntary assistance requirements. And indeed, evidence given by Federal Police Department is that that had worked quite well in the past um, and continues even to do so, because since the introduction of the Assistance and Access Act, uh, where access has been granted, it's been granted voluntarily by by companies. So the warrant system as of as of August, which is the last time we heard evidence from federal police about their use of this law, the warrant system was untouched as of that date. Okay, now there have been two reviews of the laws since their introduction in Australia. Tell me something about um, 
the issues that those reviews brought up and uh, and their conclusions as well. Yeah, so I think also it might be worth pointing out at this at this juncture that the fact that there have been well, one is still ongoing, but two reviews since the law was introduced in 2018. I, that's that's pretty remarkable to already be reviewing something so extensively. And I think that's a marker of just how controversial this this law actually was nationally. So the first review, which is complete um, and was published in July of this year, a 316-page report by Australia's independent national security legislation monitor. So that's a figure who is provides oversight to the government of any national security and counterterrorism law. So independent, a part of government, but also meant to be sort of independent. That review, as I just mentioned, was completed in July um, and really doubled down on the idea of there is a need for law enforcement to have access to encrypted data. And with that need is a requirement for keeping systems secure. This is not a binary choice. And the legislation monitor, his name was James Renwick, he's actually since retired from from the post, but he also recommended that a retired judge be appointed by the Administrative Appeals Tribunal to be an investigatory powers commissioner and oversee the access uh, warrants that were granted to law enforcement agencies. So he was pro taking that role away from the Attorney General. Mm. I'm guessing the Attorney General was less in favour of that that suggestion and that the government doesn't take uh, kindly to the suggestion that what is needed is in fact a retired judge rather than a politician. Well, quite. So Renwick's review is feeding into an ongoing parliamentary review and then we'll see how much of, how many of his recommendations are are taken up by the parliamentary committee. Now this uh, parliamentary review, uh, presumably there's been feedback from industry. I know that you covered feedback from industry uh, when the legislation was first being discussed. I'm assuming that uh, industry doesn't feel more warmly about it now that the law has been in place for um, for several years. I would agree with that assessment. I'd also say that there's a sort of resignation amongst industry that, well, this law is now passed. It's entered into effect. So what's the best that we can do with what we have? Well, it's probably this independent review that um, was published in July. And so industry, on the for the most part, has said, we back all of these um, recommendations published in July. Please, Parliamentary Committee, just adopt all of these, basically. And what about where Australia sits on the international stage uh, when it comes to encryption discussions? Obviously, as we've discussed, Australia was pretty far ahead of the pack with designing this piece of legislation back in 2018. But in terms of um, more recent development on an international scale, uh, we had a joint statement quite recently from the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan and India that called on industry to develop reasonable proposals that would enable law enforcement access to encrypted communications. Now, that came slightly prior to the pushes that we're hearing um, are now coming from Europe um, that, we he- that we've heard about from Matthew and Arezki. Um, but there is some concern when there was some concern, sorry, when that international statement was published, just as an example from New Zealand, about how that international effort would interact with the country's adequacy status with Europe's GDPR. How can the two things be held in balance, basically? 
And that, again, brings us to the issue of the GDPR and how it reverberates around the world. We always seem to return to uh, to, to that question. But uh, getting to the issues that Erezki was talking about, and that is the removal of extreme violent uh, content, which has usually been posted by terrorist organisations, this is also a familiar discussion in Australia. So tell me something about the laws dealing with uh, what is referred to locally as abhorrent violent content and uh, what overlap, if any, there is with encryption. So in Australia, I would say the only similarity really between the Assistance and Access Act and the abhorrent violent material um, law is the speed with which they were both passed. Um, But just to give you a little bit of context around the abhorrent violent material law in Australia, it stemmed from the Christchurch attack in New Zealand in 2019 when an Australian gunman um, attacked worshippers at two mosques in New Zealand um, and he broadcast his attack on Facebook Live. Um, And that prompted policymakers to very quickly create an Australian law requiring abhorrent violent material to be expeditiously removed from platforms so that it can't be shared across the internet. And so this was content that was being generated um, abroad, so in New Zealand, but nonetheless it was it was being broadcast in Australia and so the Australian government thought that it needed legislation to deal with that problem, right? That's correct. I actually think, though, that the Australian motivation mainly lay in the fact that the gunman in this attack was Australian. Okay, so there was a, an added sense of uh, of responsibility, I suppose, um, at a broader level. And now, non-compliance in the case of the failure to remove abhorrent content uh, comes with a threat of a prison term, uh, which is extraordinary in, in the in the sense that uh, Facebook uh, employees in Australia could end up in jail if the uh, content isn't removed uh, expeditiously. Absolutely. It is a criminal offence to fail to do so. So local employees of international companies, as well as Australian companies, could be jailed for up to three years if they fail to comply with these requirements. And companies could face fines of up to 10% of their annual turnover under the um, abhorrent violent material laws. I just thought I'd mention here as well that um, non-compliance with the encryption laws that we've also discussed also carries a a criminal penalty for non-compliance with a possible jail term of of 10 years there. Okay, so clearly the stakes are very high and it would be a very brave company that would uh, stand in the way of the application of these laws. Laurel, as always, thank you for all of your work covering these issues. It's been great fun talking today. Thanks, James. Laurel Henning is MX's senior reporter and she was speaking to us from Sydney, Australia. And we'll post some links to Laurel's analysis of both the encryption legislation and the abhorrent violent content laws at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. And subscribers will see the two case files that chronicle the development of that legislation, just in case anyone needs to get granular on their understanding of these two areas. Now, if you take one thing away from today's program, let it be this. You can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Leave a review, send an encrypted message to a friend and tell them and possibly the police officer accessing the message all about the podcasts and help us spread the news that way. We'll be back in your feed next Friday morning GMT. I'm James Panicki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at MLEX. Thank you so much for your company. I'll see you again next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.